So far, we have, if you're visiting with us, we're going through the book of Galatians. And so far, we've gone through two chapters. We're making really, really fast progress through this book. As we've been going through this letter that Paul wrote, so far, Paul has essentially been defending his authority as a gospel, as a, an apostle. He's been defending his own authority, and he's been using his own personal story to do that. So chapter 2, has, it's a lot of Paul's story, a little bit autobiographical. He's telling his story. Remember, way back at the beginning, Paul skipped the pleasantries. Normally, in a letter, if you read all of Paul's other letters, there's a blessing that's there, something nice and pleasant that he says about the people he's writing to. Galatians, he skips all of that. He jumps straight into, effectively, a, a rebuke. Skips the pleasantries, skips all the, of the nice stuff, and he jumps straight into a confrontation. He's astonished. How could they possibly be going away to another gospel? How had they begun to believe and turn to a different gospel? Paul's astonished. He then goes into the section telling his story that he did not receive the gospel of man, but he received the gospel directly from Jesus. He tells this dramatic, his, his story is this dramatic encounter that he has. He doesn't retell it here, but he's hinting at it, of this experience he had where the Lord visited him directly on the road to Damascus. And he had this encounter with the risen Jesus. But it wasn't just a personal experience for Paul. The rest of the apostles accepted him and brought him in. They, they said, yeah, this is an apostle. He then tells this story that we looked at last week where he confronts Peter face to face. He publicly confronts Peter to his face on the fact that he's refusing to eat with Gentile believers. He says that Peter is contributing to this problem that's developing where the people in Galatia, the Galatian churches, they are now creating multiple classes of Christians, some that are worth eating with and some that are not, and some that you divide over certain things and some that you're not. And he confronts it head on, publicly, openly confronts another apostle. It's pretty amazing, actually, the story. Paul would have none of it, none of this divide, none of this false gospel, none of this, he, he would have none of it. He concludes that sort of biographic section with this verse that I said last week we should commit to memory, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the thesis. That's the point that Paul's trying to get at in this whole thing. There's no other gospel. This is it. If you are in Christ, you have been crucified with him. The life you now live is not yours. It's his. He is now alive in you. It's not your life anymore. It's his. To go on living like normal, as if nothing had changed, now that you're a believer, makes no sense. 
Paul says it's, that's essentially nullifying the grace of God. So then we jump into chapter 3. Chapter 2, Paul was making clear that the gospel is true through his personal experience. Chapter 3, now he's going to show that not only is it through, true through his personal experience, but it's true through your personal experience. And not only is it true through your personal experience, it's also true through the experience of Abraham and through the scriptures. He's using logic to make this case. It's my story, your story, but also the historic story of tradition. He does this by asking six questions. There's effectively six rhetorical questions here that Paul is going to ask. Rhetorical questions mean these are questions that are asked for a dramatic effect or to make a point, not necessarily for you to answer. So he asks six questions, and they all sort of build one upon each other. They all build a case of logic. Their intention is to provoke the Galatians, and to, as us as readers and hearers of the word, to provoke us to look at our lives, to examine them closely, and to think carefully and critically about the gospel that we believe and that we follow in. So he jumps in. It's one of those lines that, oh foolish Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's our first question. Who has bewitched you? Paul's not playing around. This is pretty uh, cutting, pointed, sharp words here. They, these are meant to cut and wake you up. You, you're meant to be a little bit jarred. What did Paul just say, you foolish Galatians? Didn't Jesus say anybody who calls somebody a fool has already committed murder in their heart? What is Paul doing? It's meant to like, that's pretty serious. Remember, it's rhetorical. This is more like your dad asking you, or this is something I ask my kids often, what were you thinking? Why? What were you, th did, were you using your brain? Did you think that through? Any other parents? Okay, good. <laughs> You're better than that. You know better than that. That's what Paul's doing here. Foolish in the original language, it means to have, you have knowledge. You, you have knowledge, but you choose not to use it. You have knowledge, it means you have an unwillingness to use one's mental faculties in order to understand. You're unwilling to use your brain. You have the ability, you know better, but you're unwilling to do anything about it, and that's what it looks like to act foolish. So Paul's question, who has bewitched you? Strong language. Other translations, the CSB says, you foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Who has cast a spell on you? I actually like bewitched better. I think it's probably the right word, but casting a spell gets to the idea. 
It gets to the point. The idea here is that you have now had your thinking seduced and clouded. To be bewitched is to have or have a, a uh, some some sort of evil influence exerted over you, to cast a spell on or to gain control. The imagery is that of an evil eye. So in the ancients, they believed that if you, for instance, a snake, maybe a good image of this. You guys seen the old Disney um, Jungle Book? The snake, trust in me. You guys remember it? You look in its eye and you become bewitched. That's the, the imagery of the ancients would believe that if you looked at a serpent, you could become bewitched. A spell could come over you. So the thing is, don't look at the eye. Paul's saying, who has invaded your heart and stolen your ability to think clear? Who has invaded your heart and stolen your ability to think clearly. It's also fascinating. I'm, I'm uh, taking a Greek class right now, so I'm nerding out on some of this language. The word who is an odd singular. Who. This is not, like, there's multiple false teachers going on in Galatia. There's multiple things, uh, false messages that are happening. But there's one specific accuser. One specific enemy Paul has in mind here. Who has bewitched you? You foolish, somebody who has the knowledge but blatantly chooses not to use it, Galatians, who has put a spell on you and stolen your ability to think clearly? There's an enemy that is seeking to distort the gospel. And I think Paul's point is, yeah, there's an enemy, but you chose, this is why you're foolish, you chose deliberately to allow him to do that. You gave in. You chose not to think critically about what was happening. You had the ability, but you chose not to. And it was Peter, remember the same guy that we read about Paul confronting last week. It was Peter in 1 Peter who told us, 1 Peter chapter 5, 8 and 9, he said, Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour him. Resist him, firm in your faith. Jesus said that the thief, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's exactly what the who is doing here in Galatia. He has come, or this, this enemy has come, and is working to steal their faith and their trust in the sufficiency of the work of Jesus on the cross. It's belittling the gospel. They were saying essentially what Jesus came to do and accomplished on the cross was good, but it wasn't enough. That's essentially what the legalists were saying here. That was good, but it wasn't enough. You need more. You have to also keep the law. You guys, this is not restricted just to the geographic region that we're learning at in Galatia or the first century. I hope you see that. Like that's, that happened and is alive and well in, in our hearts. <laughs> we try to add things to it. Jesus, what you did was good, but not good enough. I actually need to add more to that. 
The question here, it's, it's rhetorical. It's meant to be sobering. We should stop and think about this. These were followers of Jesus. These were disciples of Jesus. And it seems like Paul's saying they had allowed themselves to be bewitched by a distorted gospel. They had looked at the proverbial eye of the snake, so to speak, and allowed themselves to be put under this spell. Paul continues, he says, It was before your eyes, notice the eyes there, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified, or as crucified. I love this. And I think this is why Paul is using, can use such harsh language. He's, he's confident that they heard the gospel. He's confident that they had seen, so to speak, the gospel. Paul's going back to their eyes because it was through their eyes that they had been bewitched. They, he says that it was before their eyes that they had seen Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, thinking carefully, like these guys are pretty far up north, Galatia. This is 20 years later, at least. They, didn't, they probably didn't actually see Jesus crucified down in Jerusalem. But what Paul was so confident is that he and those who worked with him had so clearly presented the gospel of truth, so repeatedly, publicly, clearly proclaimed the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, that they had seen it. They, it was as good as if they had seen it. The word portrayed means to set out a public notice, to proclaim or to placard in public. It's the imagery of like a billboard that you can't help but see. It puts it publicly, so boldly and so plainly, so clearly, that no one could possibly say they didn't know. Paul's confident that that's how the gospel is presented in these churches. Yes, what if we could say of our friends and our coworkers and our family that the gospel was so clearly presented repeatedly, publicly, over and over and over again that we could be confident that it was as if they had seen the cross of Christ? I think that's what we're called to do, to publicly portray Jesus Christ as crucified. Publicly portray him as crucified. Second question. There's six of these questions. Remember, they're rhetorical. They're meant to make you think. They're meant to, for you to take a step back and think carefully. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by keeping all the rules? Or did you receive the Holy Spirit by faith and trust in the gospel, the finished work of Jesus? Church, how, how did you receive the Spirit? Did, do you remember? <laughs> do you remember 
that moment? That's good. Was your life the same after you received the Spirit? It shouldn't have been. This is, in the New Testament, it was an obvious difference. There was an obvious change that happened and came over people when they received the Spirit. There was a real change. This is why Paul could say, or Peter could say, is, can anybody withhold baptism? Clearly, these, these Gentiles have received the Spirit. There was a clear, marked change. Something was different. God was with them. They were marked by the presence of their maker. And people took notice. But here's the thing, and this is human nature. This is real in in a lot of situations. Human nature places value on things we work for and pay for. Even to the point of like... (laughs) Even in the church, like we, we think of that as like, well, people are going to value, if we just do a free event or if we like just do this all for free for people, then they might not actually take it seriously. But if you pay, even if it's something little like $5, you're making a commitment to show up and come. Because we value what we pay for. <laughs> we value what we work for. We value where we put our effort and our energy. That's how you determine value. But that's pretty much the opposite of the gospel. So we place value on things that we invest in, but the gospel is free. Like free, free. There's nothing you can do to buy it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. It's free. But this is why it's so easy to fall into the trap of the legalists. So easy because it plays right into the core of humanity. It plays right into the core of what makes us us. The legalist says, believe in Jesus, but you also need to do X, Y, and Z. You also need to follow this rule and this law and be a part of this group and this community, and you can't eat with those people. And all of a sudden, our sense of personal investment goes, I like that. I'll feel good if I do that. If I put in some work, like that'll make me feel like I just did something good. But that whole premise is distorting the gospel. It plays right into our human nature. Paul says, do you remember? How did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works? For Paul, he was likely there or part of some of these early Christians in their time when they received the Spirit. So he's maybe challenging them. Do you remember when I preached? When I talked about the cross and what happened in your life from that moment? Do you remember? Because I remember I've told that story while I've been preaching multiple times. These Gentiles in Galatia, how they came to the knowledge of Jesus. Do you remember? Paul says, think back. When you came to faith, did I give you five things you have to do? And then the Spirit came on you? No. 
Of course not. We didn't receive the Spirit by works of the law. We know that. We know that. We live by faith. It's by faith, by grace, through faith. Third question. Paul, are you so foolish? It's like Paul saying, are you really unable to understand? It's that, it's that dad question. What are you thinking? Are you using your brain? To call somebody foolish was a pretty big insult culturally. We kind of throw it around pretty lightly now. But it was a pretty big insult in the culture. And Paul is rhetorically saying, he's, he's saying essentially, you are not mentally deficient. You have the ability to see this, even if it's just by reason of my story and your experience with the Spirit. You have the ability to figure this out. You have the ability to see what's happening here, that you are being bewitched. Stop being foolish. Fourth question. You guys all right? Fourth question. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Another way of saying this, are you so unreasonable that having started your walk with Christ in the Spirit, you are now actually thinking you can improve on that using your own fleshly abilities? I once heard someone describe this by taking or using the example of like a baseball that was signed by Babe Ruth. It's pretty much... You guys have seen Sandlot, I'm sure. It's pretty pretty uh, valuable. Baseball signed by the babe. What if you took that signature and you're like, oh, I'm going to add some value to this. I'm going to put my name right beneath there. You didn't add any value to that baseball. You actually probably just completely destroyed its value. But that's how we look. <laughs> this is what, what's happening here. They're saying, I can somehow add value to the cross. I can do something now to add to what Jesus did and make it better. You can't. You just can't. You can't add anything to what Jesus did. You can't make it better. In fact... You can only probably make it worse if you try. This is Paul in, in Romans chapter 7. He says, Romans seven eighteen, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul knows full well there's nothing good I add to this equation. There's nothing good I bring. So Paul's saying, I don't get it. He sees that there's nothing in his flesh that comes close to even comparing or measuring up to the perfection of Christ in his work. So do you really think that you can add anything 
or perfect the work of Christ by anything that you do from now on? He doesn't play with this. Philippians 3, another place Paul talks about this. We looked at this second part of this last week. Philippians 3, starting in verse 3, says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anything else, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So this is where he goes on. I was circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he goes on to tell his story of his, what su- should be fleshly confidence. And he says, but all of that I consider worthless. It's garbage. It's rubbish. It's pointless. Even Paul, who should have reason for confidence, says, I have none. He puts no confidence in his flesh. He chooses only confidence in the cross and the gospel. The reality is we all do this, though. We think somehow that we can add to the cross and perfect ourselves through striving and effort and work. We try to complete what Jesus has started, and by doing so, we're saying that his work is not sufficient. So the question, the reflection for us is, essentially, what are you trying to perfect in yourself? What are you trying to perfect in yourself? If this happens, then life will be good. If I get this job, make this career move, have this many kids, get married, buy this house, what is it that you're saying, if I do this, life will be good? Or maybe spiritualize it. If I attend church every Sunday, go to every Bible study, sing all the worship songs, don't listen to other music, whatever it is for you, what are you trying to do to perfect yourself? Good question to think about would be, what is there in my life that if I lost, I wouldn't feel complete anymore? What is there in my life that if I lost today, I would no longer feel complete? If the answer to that question is anything other than Jesus, we we should do some work. Think that through. We're falling into the same trap as the Galatians, trying to perfect the work of Christ through our striving. All we need, all we need to do, what our responsibility is, is to set our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, including the thought about the Great cloud of witnesses, the hall of faith, Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race which is set before us. How do you do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Even in there, it's Jesus who's the perfecter of our faith. 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God forever. Fifth question. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Another way of saying this, sort of my paraphrase here. Has your discipleship, your, your apprenticeship, your following in the footsteps, your taking up your cross, has, has all of that been in vain? You've been on a journey for some time, practicing the way of Jesus. What was the point if now you're going to try to do it on your own? For the Christian, every bit of suffering forms us more and more into his image. As we take up our cross and we follow in his footsteps on the way to the cross, every bit of that is not worthless. It's forming us into his image, shaping us. It's the way of discipleship. Sixth question, and we'll begin to wrap up. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Another way of putting this. Does God give us the Spirit and work miraculously through you and around you? By the way, implying that that's the expected norm. Uh, Does he do that Because you keep the law, because you live good, obedient lives, or does he do it because you hear the word and respond to the good news with faith and obedience? This is important because this questioning bookends sort of this series of questions. He's he's referencing, you'll notice the same words there, by works of the law or hearing of faith. He's bookending his series of questions. Similar, very similar to the second question. His point, did you earn it? Did you earn it or was it by faith? When scripture repeats itself, it's really important. Did you earn it? Was it by works of the law or by the spirit? Then finally, Paul develops this question. He does it by now looking at not his story and not your story, Now he's going to go to the story of Scripture. So he turns to the story of Abraham. Verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that if those of, that if those of faith who are, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. Paul's saying, Even Abraham, your patriarch, the father of the Jewish people, the father of faith, He was not even declared righteous by keeping the law. First of all, the law of Moses didn't come out for a long time after that. But secondly, 
It was ultimately faith firmly in the hope of a Messiah and the resurrection of the dead. He trusted that God would even raise his son from the dead. That, that's ultimately what it was. A, a trust and a faith in a coming Messiah that we know as Jesus. And because of that faith, he is called righteous. So what's the point? What's Paul's point with this barrage of questions? What's he trying to accomplish? I'd highly encourage this week as you go back and reflect on this passage, as we look to the rest of chapter 3 here, to go ahead and sit down with these questions and allow them to cut you. Allow them to provoke you to ask tough questions. Do you remember what it was like when you came to faith? Do you remember what it was like when the Spirit came upon you? Do you remember what your life looked like at that moment? Do you remember the work of Christ in you? Take some time this week. Provoke yourself to think deeply about your faith, to think critically about the gospel that you believe. Don't be foolish. Don't think that you can somehow add to the cross. If there's, some, if there's striving in your life, if there's something that you feel so like, I have to work to make this up or to keep this image going or whatever it is, stop it. What are you thinking? You can't add anything to the cross. You can't add any value to what he accomplished on the cross. He's already done it. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Set your eyes on him repeatedly over and over and over again. The gospel is the good news about Jesus, his life, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension, and his sending of the Spirit to indwell us and empower us to live lives imaged after him. That's the gospel. It's good news about something he did, not you. It's good news about something he accomplished on the cross, something he accomplished solely of his own power, and he invites you into. It's good news that changes everything. Nothing is the same in light of this good news. All we are to do is to set our eyes on Jesus, to fix our eyes on him, to look to him. He has already done it all. He's accomplished the work. So this, this week, let's take time. Let's remember the Lord. Remember what he has done in our lives. Take time. Tell the story. Tell your kids. We just did baby dedication child dedications. Tell your kids the story, if nothing else, just to remind yourself of how you came to faith. Tell them of when the Spirit came on you. Tell them of the testimonies of the things that God has done in your life. Tell them the stories when God has provided. It does two things. It shapes them into the image of Christ, but it, re it reorients your heart 
to see that it's not your power, not your ability. It's all him. He has done it all. He is the object of our faith. Tell the story over and over again. Never get tired of telling the story of the gospel and its impact in your life. That's our commission. Tell of God's goodness. Remember your history with him. Remember what he has done in your life and where he has taken you from. And that's our goal for the week. Amen? Worship team, you guys can come back up. Let me pray. It's our goal for every week, by the way. So there's nothing novel there. Father, we thank you that it was your good pleasure to send the Son, that you, out of your own will, your own volition, chose to send the Son, that Jesus, you willingly walked to that cross. You willingly laid your life down for us. Father, I pray that you would remind us again of the gospel that we believed and the gospel that we placed our faith, that you would remind us again that the cross would be clearly portrayed to us again and again and again. That the good news of the resurrected Christ and the sent spirit, the empowerment to be his ambassadors on the earth would be told over and over and over again. God, remind us of our story with you. Remind us of what you've accomplished. Remind us of who you are. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. Amen.